going to be talking about the day of the Lord and, and really more so what to do about it. Um, don't, <laughs> that, that phrase, I could tell several people tensed up. This is not an end time sermon. Um, I have no desire to get into that right now. So <laughs> it's a very, um, a very misconstrued term, a very uh, thrown around term um, that, that can mean several things. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about more so, and Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 5, what to do in light of the day of the Lord, because it is a reality, um, and it's something that we all exist within, right, whether we like it or not, um, and, and it has a big impact on our daily lives, right, and the way we, the, our habits, our actions, um, how we understand or, I guess, sometimes ignore or don't understand or fear the day of the Lord it has huge impacts and, and implications on just how we operate. Um, I had a, uh, <laughs> a close friend of mine um, that when I met him, I discovered that uh, he had only read Revelation. Um, <laughs> it, like exclusively, not like this is kind of my favorite. Um, and I, di- I didn't know that at the time I met him because it was initially... Um, you know, he was at this Bible study, and he was newer, and so I introduced myself, and we made a little small talk, and I was like, so I asked him something along the lines of, like, what do you do for work, or, or something like that, and he, he answered my question, um, and then he, I wish I could quote this verbatim, but he said something to the effect of, like, well, you know, it's, none of it really matters in the end, it's all pointless anyway, uh, <laughs> and I thought, okay, let me do some triage here and figure out what's going on. Come to find out he had read Revelation, I, I think it was twice, um, and I don't know if there was any scripture in between the two, but I know he's read it twice, which is, you know, that'll do a number on your worldview, um, <laughs> you could imagine, right? Uh, m- many of us didn't start there, uh, but I mean, granted, God did some really good stuff with it, and to be fair, I think he has a better understanding of the wrath of God than the majority of people, myself included, so <laughs> there's, there's an upside to that, but I bring that up to say that it really does matter how we view the day of the Lord, and, and there's things that we need to be doing and or not doing in that intermediary in-between period from Christ's ascension to his return. We have work to do, and we need, to, we need to understand the day of the Lord in a way that allows us to be fruitful and productive in that in-between time. Um, so in verse 1 here, it says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So again, this is Paul already pointing out that it's a, it's a guaranteed reality, right? It's something that's going to happen. Um, but he, uh, there's a drastic shift from where we were. We've been in First Corinthians for a few weeks, and I think, my goodness, I could not imagine Paul telling the church in Corinth that they don't need anything written to them. Um, it's it's kind of crazy to see just the disparity in those two those two letters. But um, he, so he uses this reality that the day of the Lord is a given. He uses that to uh, to praise and encourage the church in Corinth, and and for their uh, lack of distraction, for their laser focus on um, handling this kind of thing well, saying that they don't need anything to be written to them, um, which is a big deal, right? I mean, I would love to be that church. I think we should all adopt that maybe as one of our goals, is be the church that Paul doesn't have to write to, right? 
<laughs> I think that's, that maybe in this time would be like the biggest bragging, right? Um, it's like, he said he didn't even have to write this letter. He just liked us. Um, but he takes, he takes an interesting turn in verse 3. Um, it says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Pretty colorful. Um, Big transition, right? He's like, you guys, you're doing great. The rest of the people, labor pains. Um, interesting twist. But here's the thing is he knows that the church in Thessalonica is not the norm, right? They're, they're doing phenomenally well, but they're doing that in a culture that is not doing phenomenally well, right? So that's why we see such, a, um, such an excitement from Paul and why he's so proud of his church, um, or Christ's church, really. But it's, it's a really ironic situation because he says, while people are saying there's peace and security. Well, what did he just tell us in verse 1? Peace and security has already been found in the church. It's at Thessalonica, and they're doing phenomenal, right? Peace and security is claimed to be in the world, but it's a very ironic thing because the peace and security that's in the world is the complete opposite of what's happening of the true peace and the true security in the church in Corinth, um, in Thessalonica. Um, and so it was, it was a very oppressive form of peace and security that was promised outside of that. It was kind of like Rome is going to go conquer a place um, and they're going to say, we're doing this for your peace and security. Very like Orwellian 1984, if y'all have seen that. It's like, you know, we're doing this to bring you peace and security, and it's like the alternative is to die or become a slave or some other alternative less than ideal situation, right? So they're claiming this peace and security, but it's not really there. It's actually in the church, right? And that was, that was actually evidence, like I said, outside in the culture, um, it was even more evidence that that's the case because you have, um, you have this church in Thessalonica that is in the capital city in Macedonia where emperor worship is just running rampant. Um, I mean, they're, they're planted and they're, they're kind of doing their thing and they're doing what they can, but outside is absolutely wild. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's blatant pagan emperor worship happening outside of there. Um, and, you know, I talk about wanting to be the church that Paul doesn't have to write to. I think the situations are not wildly different, right? I mean, we might not have emperor worship or cast idols outside of these doors, but we, I don't think many people would disagree that we have a culture that's saturated with idol worship, um, with people that are prioritizing all sorts of things over God. So this church is a, is a killer example for us to, to look at and to, to, strive, to strive for and to be that kind of a church that's surrounded by people worshiping idols, and yet still have peace and security. But here's the thing. See, the people that are actually doing that stuff, the people outside that are, you know, pagan worshipers, they have very, very good reason to be unsure or afraid. That's an understatement, really. Terrified of the day of the Lord, right? They, they are, that's valid for them to be that way, for them to feel that way. Um, but that's the contrast Paul paints here, is that Christians, we, we have, it's not just a neutral thing for us. It's not just that we're not them. It's that we are this. It's that we, we can look on it not just neutrally as something that can happen and we're going to put it on a table or a shelf. It's something that we can look on with genuine hope and excitement and joy. 
Um, and that's an incredible privilege. And so that, that comes from a place of knowing where we stand with God. It comes from knowing our identity in Christ. And that's what Paul's going to go on to in verse 4. He says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. See, so what he's doing here is he's emphasizing their identity, who they are, but he's also emphasizing who they're not. There's a lot of contrast here. You know, you arch, uh, you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you. You are all children of light, children of the day, right? So we're, we're talking about a twofold thing, two parts of our identity that work in tandem with one another, that uh, we, are, we are not something, right? We are not in darkness. We are not bound by the things that we would be bound by if it were not for Christ. But beyond that, we can't stop there because we are a whole lot of other things that are phenomenal, right? We are beloved children of God. And if we stop short at just what we're not, then we're missing out on a whole lot, right? I don't want us to stay in this little middle ground because it's comfortable, okay? So um, he's, he's making that contrast. But now the question becomes, okay, so I'm not X, right? I'm not a, a son of darkness. I'm not this. Well, now, now there's something that has to be done, right? If we're going to take a step forward and not just remain neutral on what we're not, there's something that has to be done. Well, you know, it's, it's great news that we're, not, that we're not in darkness anymore, but we have to pursue what we are, right? So, in other words, our earnest, our earnest expectation of the day of the Lord is what drives our sanctification, right? Earnest expectation should drive sanctification, and it's what we see in several parables of Jesus, um, particularly the parable of the ten talents, right? We have a master going away and with an, you know, unknown time of return, coincidentally, and we have uh, uh, servants that have been given five talents, two talents, and one talent, right? And so, the, the servants that have five talents and two talents, they are aware of what it means that their master is going to return. And so they say, they steward what they have well. They do everything they can to be productive and, um, and efficient in the way they're using what's been given to them. Well, what, what about the guy with one? He, he operates in fear. He doesn't have a complete understanding of what it means that his master is coming back. And so he gets scared and he buries it. And he says, I'm going to leave it right here and wait, and I'll be okay. The whole, the whole point, though, is that he's, he's worrying the whole time, right? If he buries that talent and then walks away, he's still worrying. I hope it doesn't get dug up today. He's, he's in fear because he doesn't understand the implications of his master's return. So how do we avoid falling into that trap? Well, verse 6, it says, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So, he does a, a couple of things there, but namely, he answers that question of how to not be that guy, right? He, he gives us this um, condensed version of the, the armor of God, right, which we see in Ephesians 6. But he reduces that here into um, kind of a triad of faith, hope, and love, right? He says, um, you know, put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Um, so he kind of brings it into, into these three things, faith, hope, and love. And 
it's, it's because of our identity as children of light, we should be spending our time leading up to this day of the Lord operating in those things. That's what our sanctification is going to look like on a practical level, is operating in faith and hope and love. Right? Our identity, it, it should produce good fruit because our habits are, are a reflection of, of who we are. Right? So when we understand our identity as who we are, there's going to be good fruit that's born from that. Now, the opposite is also true. Right? So when we, when we don't have a complete understanding of who we are, we, we have this kind of rotten fruit that's there where it's fear-based obedience and it's, it's a lack of understanding of what it means to be on the right side on the day of the Lord, right? Because if, if I don't understand exactly what it means that, that the return of Christ is going to happen and I'm going to be on the, the you know, there's kind of two options there and I don't want to be under the wrath side. So, <laughs> you know, if, if I don't understand... That, by the way, the, the day of the Lord, I should clarify, that gets tossed around, but it's really specifically referring, at least in this passage, to the Great Tribulation, which is that period where God's wrath is going to be poured out on the unbelievers, right? Those who have not made the decision. So that's, you know, what we're talking about when, when we say day of the Lord. But there's a, there's a very easy trap in front of us to just obey out of fear because it's a weird thing to talk about the day of the Lord, and it's kind of scary um, and so the, the temptation is to just sit in fear and obey so that you can fool the people outside of you into thinking you're doing what God has called you to do, into thinking you're walking out sanctification. But when it's just you and God, it's fear-motivated, okay? It's like this, this rotten fruit that is just starting to spoil, and I haven't been on my own for long, so timing produce is hard for me. And so maybe I experienced this more than other people. But, you know, it's like it looks fine, and then you got to grab it, and it's like there's all these brown spots, and it's just weak. And it's like this is what happens when you have this picture painted of obedience, but the motivation underneath it is fear, right? So, so what's the remedy for that? How do we stay out of that? Paul is phenomenally good at anticipating our questions, thankfully. So verse 9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath. Stop fixed. <laughs> God has not destined us for wrath, okay? So on that day of the Lord, I've just been told by scripture, which I believe, I'm not destined for wrath. I'm a child of God, Amen. right? So I, I love Paul is just like, he just gets it timed so well. It says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Right? So right off the bat, he's taking care of the temptation to obey out of fear because why fear? We're not destined for that end of things anyway. Right? But beyond that, he does something else. He gives us a call to action that is, is in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. So they're doing great at this. I'm sure, you know, they had some room to improve. I know we do, right? <laughs> so it's a, it's a call to action, and more than that, it's a demand that Christians are not just complacent in that middle ground I talked about. It's a demand to actually take a step out of the comfort zone, take a step out of the neutral part of, of, this, of our framework, of our identity, and to actually pursue what we are instead of just accepting that we're not this, right? And so it's not just about what not to do. 
Okay? Kaufman's commentary says this, it is not enough merely to refrain from saying what will discourage or damage another, or from practicing what will offend another, or from doing what may tempt another. That's, that's what our world would have so many people believe. There's such a prevalent misconception in the world that Christianity is just what not to do. If we stop there, we have missed the whole thing, guys. It's not just, it is what not to do. And there's, part, we, there's obviously things we shouldn't be doing. But oh my goodness, if we just stop after that, what are we doing, right? Like, there's, there's work to be done. So we have to actually do something. Well, what is that? It's, it's pursuing sanctification. And it's pursuing sanctification from an earnest expectation, not fear, not ignorance of the day of the Lord. Which sounds great, but walking that out can kind of be tricky, right? It's not just something that we wake up and say, I'm going to get sanctified. <laughs> I, wish, I wish it were that easy. Um, no, there, but there are several ways, but I think one of the most important that Paul is talking about in verse 11, I'll get back to read it, therefore encourage one another and build one another up. It's together, guys. It's doing it together, okay? It's not... It's not the kind of thing, I mean, there's individual sanctification, and it's incredibly important that we spend alone time with God, that we, that we purify ourselves, but Christ's church is holy and pure, and if we're not taking steps and making an effort to, to sanctify the body corporately, we're not doing what Paul's saying here. Now, that, that looks like several things, and I think our church is... is you know, not to brag, but I love our small groups. I love that we do encourage one another, and I love that, I mean, it, it could be something simple, but building one another up and encouraging one another is part of corporate sanctification. And, and what we're doing when we're being a prayer partner, when we're being an accountability partner, because somebody's stumbling, we're all stumbling. Don't act like an accountability partner is a thing. We all need that. Okay, just, just so that's clear, because I know people get weird, like, I don't need an account. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Literally, everybody needs one, okay? So that's, if you, if you don't have one, do that this week. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's togetherness. It's, it's purifying one another and not just saying, I'm going to stay in my lane, and I'm going to do me and work on me, and, you know, it's not about that. It's not, and, and that's important in, in the personal sanctification sense, because we need to be able to pour into others, but we can't stop there. Now, Paul also gives the, the phenomenal framework for doing this in verse 8, which is the triad, the faith, hope, and love. He gives us a, a really good blueprint for that, right? But we have to ask questions that actually apply those things. We can't just, um, you know, I, I think it's very easy to brush off if I were to just say, Am I being sanctified today? I'm like, I don't know what that means, probably. Sure, like, it's so easy to just let that become a thing that we can just, you know, I'm, I checked in with myself, I'm, I'm doing what I can. Now, ask questions that challenge yourself. Ask questions that lead to faith, hope, and love being applied in your daily life. Am I loving my neighbor well? This person that I don't really care for? This person that has a really aggravating behavior that I really want to call out, and maybe I should... Am I loving them well? Or, or faith? Am I, am I actually willing to let go of what I want and trust God with fill in the blank? Am I willing to leave this 
job opportunity, even though this one might not be as good? Am I willing to surrender this relationship or this friendship to God, even if I'm just convinced personally that the outcome is not going to be ideal? Are we willing? Faith, hope, love. These are things that we can do. These are things that we can do individually and as a corporate body to purify ourselves, to walk a righteous lifestyle. But here's the thing. All of that that I just mentioned does not work without the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's not something we can do on our own. I can't sit up in bed and just say that I'm going to go practice faith, hope, and love by myself today. That's literally not even in the cards. It's not an option. <laughs> I've tried it. <laughs> it doesn't work. Okay? Like, you can't, you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, through the finished work of Christ, right? We're enabled by the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Christ. See, if Christ had not hung on a cross for me, I would stand here not only unable to walk in sanctification, but I would also be absolutely terrified of the implications of his return. It's a big deal what we've been saved from, right? The privilege it is to look at Christ, who came lowly on a donkey, to know that he's going to return from the clouds on a white horse, and to be able to look on that and actually have hope, that's incredible, we don't deserve to be able to be hopeful about that. I mean, that's a terrifying image for the world. They might not know it, but it is. It's absolutely horrible. So we have this time. We have this window between his ascension and his return. Let's use it, right? Let's not just leave the cards on the table and just, and just you know, pretend that everything's fine and, and the day of the Lord be this thing that we just don't touch until it happens. No, that's the whole point. <laughs> the whole point is that we take this information that we've been given about Christ's return and we use it to purify ourselves and to purify the church. I remember Vic reading from Romans 10 a week or two ago, just, just a call to salvation. Just, you know, if, um, if you confess with your heart Jesus is Lord, or confess with your mouth, <laughs> Jesus is Lord and, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And I thought, oh my gosh, it should not be that easy. <laughs> I mean, really? Do, you have, do we have any idea what we deserve? That's not it. That's not it. It should not be that simple. But it is. He declared us righteous. And, and his demand for delivering us from sin and from death and from darkness is that we walk a righteous lifestyle. Is that too much? See, when you understand the severity and the magnitude of what he took me out of, when I really understand how big of a deal it is that I'm actually saved and what I'm saved from, when I understand the privilege it is to look on his return and to have that picture of him returning in my head and be filled with hope and joy, when I understand that, I will be violently taking down brick by brick everything that stands in the way of my sanctification. It should, it should be a motivating force for us when we learn about the day of the Lord. It, sh it should inspire us to find things. We should be actively seeking things out like, I got to fix this. I got to do, I, I got to get rid of whatever is standing in the way of me doing what God has called me to do. Yeah? So, I think we can do better. <laughs> I think, I know I can do better, Right? I think, I think we can be there for our brothers and sisters as, as best as we can. I think 
you know, we can lay down any part of ourselves that stands in the way of what Christ has called us to. And he's faithful to point those out, I promise. <laughs> he does it for me, he'll do it for you, you know? It's, it's, it's not really a big thing for him. So ask him, right? It's scary because we know that we're not pure. We know that we're not really walking in sanctification and we're not really applying faith and hope and love every day. But he's faithful to show us that. And I encourage you, because the day, the day we really start getting an understanding, which we may never until eternity, of how big of a deal it is that we've been delivered, when we have that rooted in our hearts, it's not a scary thing to ask God to point something out that, that is in my way, that's in, in the way of me and Him. It becomes, it becomes not just not scary, it becomes passionate. It becomes, I desperately want to tear down everything in between me and you, God. Amen? So, I want to pray for us that we can do that, um, that we can actually live up to what we're called for. So, Father, we come before you just humbled um, by what you've done, by who you are, by who you've made us to be. Lord, we know and we acknowledge here that we are as far as far can be from obtaining what we need to be on our own. We, we don't really stand a chance at becoming sanctified um, without your Holy Spirit enabling us to do just that. If, if there's this, this mountain we're climbing to get to sanctification, I don't want us to think, Lord, that we are just one foothold away from getting there. God, we're on the other side of the planet, and we need you so desperately. <laughs> So I just ask you, God, to reveal to us, to work in our hearts, and to point out those, those things that can be dealt with that are in the way of us living the righteous lifestyle that you've called us to. God, we should owe you infinitely more than sanctification, but that, that is what you demand, and that is a joyful thing. God, when we understand what it is we've been delivered from, sanctification is a joyful thing, and I ask that you would reveal that to us in our daily lives that Lord as we as we learn about you as we educate ourselves on your return and as we begin to take roots in our heart of what that really means and the implications Lord I ask that you would just make our sanctification a joyful process that we could walk with you in the cool of the day and purify ourselves and purify your body God in Jesus name